To you, Father, we come in the name of the Son, the Son of the living God, the one who has become our Master, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you have not put us in this world to struggle on our own, but as you have called us into your family, that you have led us in accordance with your great plan and purpose for our lives. Father, we thank you for the love of Christ, which is shed abroad in our hearts each and every day, and for the compassion that you put in our hearts for others, and the fact that through prayer we can see the miracle of God transforming lives and winning more and more into the kingdom. And we're thankful for the degree to which you give us a role in that. Father, we thank you for the word as it's being proclaimed abroad in other countries. We're grateful that you have prepared the way for Steve and Brenda, and we pray that your blessing will be upon them as they minister there. And we are grateful that Luda finally was able to get through and to be here, and we pray that you'll give her a special time of ministry and blessing in the two months or so that she will be here in the United States. Father, we trust that this morning you will be present not only in our class here, but in each and every class to accomplish your goodwill. In Christ's name, amen. We're studying in the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus. And in that chapter, we have seen some rather dramatic events take place. If you were not with us last week, let me just briefly review that the Israelites had failed to enter the promised land because they rejected the leadership that God had given to them. They listened to the voice of the ten spies who didn't see any success before them in entering the land. They rejected the message of God through Moses and Aaron and through Joshua and Caleb. And as a result, they were condemned to die in the wilderness there south of the promised land. Then we noticed that two of the men of the tribe of Reuben, and we have to assume that they were leaders of the tribe of Reuben, Dathan and Abiram, challenged the leadership of Moses as God's anointed over the Israelite nation. And God answered that challenge rather dramatically by splitting the earth open under their tents and they all fell in, passing alive into Sheol. And then to another man by the name of Karah and 250 cohorts of his, probably all Levites, challenged Aaron's leadership as high priest of Israel. And God simply torched them with fire coming out from the tabernacle and, and they died there. And the passage immediately before the one we'll be reading this morning, we see that Aaron's son Eliezer was sent out amongst, amongst the scorched bodies to pick up all the censers that they had used to bring incense before the Lord in this trial to determine whether Aaron or Korah was God's choice, which had already been made plain long before, but they dared to make this challenge, to pick up all these censers and to hammer them into sheets of, of bronze and then to hang them on the altar of sacrifice as a reminder, as a reminder of, to Israel that it is folly to challenge God's anointed. I'd like to read this morning beginning in verse 41 of chapter 16 of Numbers. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned towards the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. 
Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it and put in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for the wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he took his stand between the dead and the living, so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on the account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. If we haven't looked carefully in the mirror lately, we could probably say, how foolish can a people be? What does God have to do? What does God have to do to produce humility, faith, and obedience amongst his people? This is what he wants. That's what we're to be about. Uh, he hasn't called us here to build great monuments, uh, you know, in terms of churches to his, supposedly to his glory. Uh, he has raised up his church to manifest humility, faith, and obedience. Obviously, in this situation, it was necessary for God to do a great deal in order to bring them to humility, faith, and obedience. In Proverbs 13, we read this. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Because God is a loving father, and we see this over and over again in Scripture. You know, those who claim that the God of the Old Testament was some kind of a psychotic, neurotic being, they have never studied the Old Testament and seen that he's a God of love and mercy, and it shows over and over. It comes forth from every single page of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is absolutely no different from the God of the New Testament because the Scripture teaches us that He is unchanging. But because He is a loving Heavenly Father, and because the Israelites insisted that they were going to be a rebellious people, God was forced to use the rod of discipline on them yet again. And God is very creative. He has many different ways of disciplining His people. What, what is really amazing about this is this is the very day following the cataclysmic events involving Dathan and Abiram and Korah. And what are the people doing? They're grumbling against Moses and Aaron all over again. You know, for Moses and Aaron, it must have been deja vu again. <laughs> you know, it just has to be, had to be very discouraging for them. I mean, the dust had not hardly settled from the opening of the earth and the swallowing and the smashing together and the who knows what kind of a cloud of dust was created by that. And then the smoke of the fire that went forth from God that destroyed Kara and his 250. I mean, this hadn't even blown away yet, probably. <coughs> and already they're challenging the leadership of Moses and Aaron. This scenario, to me, proves the truth of the words of Jeremiah in the 17th chapter where he says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a verse that I think we need to keep around. Anytime we begin to become a little proud of who we are in God 
or what we have done, the heart is desperately sick. There is none that doeth good, not one, the scripture says. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, the scripture says. That, that is not meant to, to cause us to have worm theology. You know, go around with our nose in the ground, how terrible I am, how terrible I am, how terrible I am. It's, the purpose of, us, of it is to keep us aware of who we are without Christ. And that it's only in Him that we're able to, to, to accomplish the purposes of the kingdom of God. That's why there's no, there's no room for pride in, in, in the expansion of a church or the winning of a person to Christ or anything else that hop, happens. There's no pride for humans in this because it's all God's work. It's all God's work. What this also proves, I think, is that Satan never takes a holiday. You know, if we think Satan is going to just kind of forget us for a while, he's too busy somewhere else, think again. He's got plenty of little followers who are able to uh, keep the pressure on. Well, it seems that the people of Israel are unable or at the very least unwilling to accept responsibility for their own failure. So what are they doing? They're saying, you are responsible, Moses and Aaron. You are the ones that caused the death of Dathan and Abiram. You're the ones that caused Korah and his 250 to be torched. You're responsible. <laughs> and we read that and we say, these people can't see past the end of their nose. And as they confronted Moses and Aaron, God had had enough. I'd like to read a passage from 2 Thessalonians here. It's a passage, I think, that's not unfamiliar to us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, when Paul says that, he is not saying, well, you know, people in the world don't have faith. That's obvious. You know, why bother saying it? What he's implying is that there are people within the framework of the so-called church that don't have faith. But the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Notice particularly the second and the third verses here. That he's, he says he wants the word to be spread and glorified that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, by implication, even within the framework of the church. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And that's exactly what we're seeing happening here for Moses and Aaron. These are evil men. These are perverse men. Yet they're of the nation of Israel. They're the people of God, the chosen ones. And yet they obviously are not exhibiting any faith. They're coming to Moses and saying, you're responsible. Aaron, you're responsible. All this disaster is your fault. But you'll notice that God does not abandon his people to the wolves of this world, to those who are inspired by the evil one. It's possible for people within the church who do not really have true faith to be inspired by the evil one and to act accordingly. And I think that's what causes many splits in churches. God gives to his people the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit provides protection. The Holy Spirit provides strength. The Holy Spirit, if he sees fit, provides vindication. If not now, certainly ultimately. And all of those who are in the hour of need, who are in that moment of spiritual assault, can, deter, can, can absolutely depend upon the indwelling spirit of the living God for strength to stand up and to do what is right. And we see what happens here. This mob is beginning to gain strength. Yeah, they're saying, you're responsible. You can just see it moving through the congregation in waves. And the whole situation is starting to turn ugly. I mean, it hadn't been very long since they had said, let's stone Moses and Aaron. Or, you know, could easily turn to that again. We know what mobs are like. But all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord appears in the tabernacle like a great light has been turned on. The scripture says they all turned towards the tent of meeting. You can believe that as they were accusing Moses and Aaron, they weren't looking at the tent of meeting. Suddenly the glory of the Lord appeared. They turned to the tent of meeting. God caught their attention. And in response, we read that Moses and Aaron immediately went to the tent of meeting because they knew when the glory of the Lord appeared, it was time for them to present themselves before God. And anybody in that mob with the slightest sense knew they were in, pardon the phrase, deep doo-doo. <laughs> Moses and Aaron certainly stood before God with saddened hearts. I don't think they ran over like little kids and said, oh God, I'm glad you're here. Would you zap those dudes over there? No, that wasn't their idea at all. They came before God with hearts heavy for their people. They loved Israel. They had stood in the gap for Israel time and time and time again. And yet here it is happening all over again. They can't believe it. And so they come before God with heavy hearts. And I'm sure they must have suspected what God was going to say because he has said it several times before. Stand aside and I'm going to torch the crew. But as we have noted in previous events, it is not because God couldn't control his judgment. He says, move aside, Aaron and Moses, because I don't want you guys to get burned in this. No. I mean, God isn't an uncontrollable blowtorch. It's because he was testing them again. Are you willing yet one more time to stand in the gap for your people? Are you willing one more time to intercede with me for this rebellious unworthy nation. It was the compassion of Moses and Aaron, the faith of Moses and Aaron, the obedience of Moses and Aaron that had been placed there by God that was the shield for Israel. I really think that if Moses and Aaron had stepped aside and said, God, we're tired of this, do what you must, I think God would have annihilated the nation right there. They'd have been gone. God doesn't play jokes. God was deadly serious about this whole thing. But of course, God knew the hearts of Moses and Aaron. He knew the compassion they had because he had put that compassion there. He knew the faith they had. And he knew their willingness to intercede again. How often are we willing to intercede for the same people for the same thing? You know, sometimes the day comes along we say, were these people ever going to get with it or what? Well, some of you know 
You've prayed a very long time for some dear people in your lives. And maybe you're still praying. Even as we heard this morning, and any of you who were listening to uh, Lutzer this morning, he was talking about Benjamin Franklin and about how he had listened to the words of George Whitfield. And George Whitfield had prayed for the salvation of Benjamin Franklin for as long as Whitfield knew him. And Whitfield died before Franklin, and yet, as far as we know, Franklin went to his grave an unconverted man. Whitfield stood in the gap, as Aaron and Moses will stand in the gap. Does that mean every Israelite will be delivered without the touch of the flame of God? No, it does not. I don't think the people could hear the words of God spoken to Moses and Aaron that day as they stood there before the tabernacle and as God said, move aside Moses and Aaron and I'm going to annihilate this people. I don't think the people heard that. But they saw Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God at the tabernacle. They knew they had heard the word of the Lord. And anybody who had watched this before should have gotten an inkling that God was not pleased with what he saw that day. I don't think people can sin with impunity, especially those who, who've heard the word, have seen God in action. I, I don't think they can sin without there being in the back of their minds doubt that what they're doing is right. And I'm sure amongst many of those, although they were accusing Moses and Aaron, in the back of their minds, they weren't too sure this was the right thing to do. But they were doing it. They were carried along. Well, as they had in repeated instances before, Moses and Aaron implored God not to judge this people. They don't say, God, don't hit them too hard. They say, God, forgive these people. Deliver these people. And what's interesting is they call upon God's mercy without making any excuses. They don't say, well, you know, Lord, that they've had a hard time out here. It's hot in the desert. And, you know, manna, we've had it for a very long time. And, and they've been disappointed not entering the land. You know, they don't give a big long list of excuses because what's the point? You know, God sees through the whole thing. So they don't bother. They simply say, God, because you're a God of mercy, have mercy on these people. No excuses given whatsoever. God heard their prayer, but there was a price to be paid. Sin always has its consequences. Always. And God revealed to Moses that a plague was being launched amongst the people, that God was sending a plague amongst the people. And he further instructed Moses what he had to do to halt this plague. Now, you remember back, those of you who have been with us, that Moses, and, uh, that Moses had been attacked by his brother Aaron and Miriam and his authority challenged. And God, in response, had said to Aaron and to Miriam, Moses is not like other men or other prophets, because with him I speak face to face. Well, you see an example of this happening right here. Do you read in this passage any words where God is saying here in this passage what to do? No, it just says suddenly in verse 45, it says in verse 44, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, uh, you know, get away from this congregation. And then in verse 46, Moses said to Aaron, 
All of, you know, it says in the end of verse 45, they fell on their faces, the ver verse 46, then Moses said to Aaron, take your senses, censer and put fire from the altar. Where does it say anything about God saying to Moses, now this is what's going to happen and this is what you got to do? God was speaking to Moses face to face. Moses alone heard the word of the Lord, whether audibly or in his heart, as to what was happening and what had to be done. Not even Aaron heard those words from God. Moses now had a great set of options in front of him. He alone knew what God had said. He alone knew the antidote. And he could have said, I'm going to teach this people a lesson. I'm just going to sit here and doodle in the sand for a while while the people die like flies. And when I think the right moment comes, I'm going to tell Aaron what to do to stop this plague. So Moses could have determined whether few died or many died or if all died, right? Well, not exactly. We have to, of course, always remember God surrenders his sovereignty to no human being. God is sovereign in this scene as he is in all the scenes of Scripture and all the scenes of history. Because, you see, he knew what Moses would do. That's why he was able to give that message to Moses and know that Moses would act instantly and tell Aaron what to do so the plague would be stopped in God's time because he knew what Moses would do. Had he known that Moses was going to just dilly-dally around and let a lot of people die, then obviously God would have done something different. But I think at the same time, we dare not downplay the willingness of Moses to be an obedient man. Well, Moses instructed Aaron what to do. He told him to go to the altar of sacrifice, take some censers off the altar of sacrifice, put it in his censer, and the congregation, and stand between the living and the dead. Stand between those who are passing away in a matter of minutes from this plague. Certainly it was of divine origin, nothing that medical science could even have interpreted even if they had all the modern equipment because it was killing people instantly. Just like that. In a, I mean, we're talking about a, a few minutes here. We're not talking about this being hours or days. And he stood in the gap between the living and the dying and provided for atonement for those not yet dead. The burning of the incense was symbolic of the prayer of the intercessory prayer that Moses and Aaron had already prayed. The incense in the Old Testament constantly is symbolic of prayer. Well, anytime we think prayer is just a kind of a, you know, something you do when you don't know what else to do, or that prayer is some kind of flowery speech to be made for, before others to impress them with your spirituality, just look at what Scripture says. You know, it's, it's the symbol uh, of the human cry to God uh, interceding on behalf of those whose eyes are blind. The plague was stopped, but the scripture tells us that 14,700 people had perished probably in a space of less than half an hour. I don't know what you think about that, but if I were standing a group of people and suddenly 14,700 of them keeled over and died, I'd be a bit shocked, you know, to put it mildly. That is obviously the work of God. This is a supernatural plague. You know, certainly liberal scholars will come along and try to tell you, well, you know, it was the mnemonic version of the bubonic plague or, you know, some other thing. 
I, I mentioned to you before, I think, that a lot of liberal scholars, when it came to the, the great uh, plague that wiped out uh, Sennacherib's men, remember the 185,000 soldiers that went up to the walls of Jerusalem and Hezekiah prayed the prayer and the whole army died, they say, well, what really happened there was that there was a plague of mice and they came and ate all the bowstrings of their bows so they couldn't fight, so they went home. And you listen to that and you think, why, why don't you guys go and air hammer a street or something? You, know, I mean, you got lots of air in your head, so why don't you just go do that? This world is full of people who want to remove the sovereign God from the, from the place of having all power and from being a God who is imminent in this world. Well, that's one of the reasons why Benjamin Franklin had a hard time believing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, because you see, he was a deist, as Jefferson and Adams and so many of the others were. Uh, deists don't believe God actually does anything in this world, and they take all the miracles out of the Bible because God just kind of set the earth spinning, and he walked off and went somewhere else, and, and you know, he's not here doing anything. You just live according to the laws of nature and everything will be hunky-dory. Well, people like to live like to believe that because then it doesn't require them to have any faith, it doesn't require them to have any obedience, it doesn't require them to live a life that's glorifying to God. And sure, that's, that's the way of the flesh. You know, folks are dumb where I come from. They ain't had any learning. But they're happy as can be doing what comes naturally. Well, you know, what comes naturally is not of God. Once again, it was the obedience to God of the very two men that the congregation wanted to destroy that saved the congregation. I mean, you know, it's kind of like Pooh Bear. Bear of very little brain. You know, think, think, think. Moses and Aaron have stood between us and disaster time and time again. Probably not a good thing to destroy Moses and Aaron. <laughs> Both the mercy of God and the faithfulness of those who are truly His are inexplicable phenomena. You can't explain it. can't explain it. Because it's not according to human thinking. It's not the way we are. But it's a demonstration of who the sovereign God is. Let's look at the 17th chapter of Numbers. Beth? Going back in the last few weeks of what you've said about the Israelites and the fact that this is really all within the time frame of being unwilling to do it God's way. And then when God tells them the consequences, trying to do it their way as though it was still God's way. And then just on the heels of that, every single thing is a result of these people saying, we will not acknowledge who God is and our rebellion against him. We must find fault with someone else. And just thinking about the subtleness of Satan in this age and the whole psychological movement that tells you what nature says you should do when there's trauma that you're going to go through you know the, the unbelief and then the anger and you go through all the steps and this tells people you have a right to feel these things and that's basically what got these guys so messed up because they felt that they had experienced a trauma how could this God, who had promised them the promised land, now <coughs> keep them from going in? <coughs> and because of their unwillingness to say, God, what part did I have in this? What is the truth about me? You, you, you brought the Jeremiah passage up, and the verse right after that says, I, God, 
look in the hearts and see according to their ways, according to their heart, search the heart, see according to their ways and their doings what's really going on. And it just, it just hits me as you're saying, you know, our hard-heartedness, how Satan uses that today. Yeah. And we think, oh, this terrible tragedy has happened to this, to us. This terrible injustice has happened to us. This, this awful thing that God never should have let happen has occurred. And yet in Matthew, it's telling us these things, the, these injustices, these tragedies are going to get worse and worse as we get closer and closer to God's time. And if we are like the Israelites and say that we have a right to feel angry, we have a right to react, we have a right to try and push it to the way that we think it should be, we're, we're walking the same paths as these guys. Yeah. And there will be people who continue to stand in the gap and who continue to intercede, and there will be Christ who will be trying to get us to see it through the see, see the truth through the Holy Spirit. But we have got to come to the place where we say, God, help me to see where I was part of what's going on, and I need to acknowledge your sovereignty and obey now even if I blew it before. That's very good. Yeah, personalizing it so that we see our role in this, I think is really really critical to us. That's the whole understanding, I think, of the Old Testament is putting it within the framework of the new and seeing it as it applies to ourselves. And I think that's really true. Thank you. Chapter 17, I'd like to read the first seven verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each father's household, twelve rods from all their leaders according to their father's households. You shall write each name on his rod, and write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. And it will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus it, I shall lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. Moses therefore spoke to the sons of Israel, and all their leaders gave him a rod apiece. For each leader according to his father's households, twelve rods, with the rod of Aaron among their rods. So Moses deposited the rods before the Lord in the tent of meeting. Now to me it's very interesting when you look at this to see that all that's gone on, now God says, okay, bring all your staffs here and we're, we're going to do something here. I mean, God is demonstrating here His mercy in, in, a, in a profound way. After all they've been through, He says, okay, now one more time, let's, let's look at this thing again. I'm going to show you all over again whom I have chosen to lead my people. I'm going to nail it down. Answer for once and for all the question as to whom is the spiritual leader of Israel? Who is the high priest? What is the family that I have chosen to be priest in Israel? And so God does it with an incredible sign. One more opportunity for his authority to be acknowledged by the people. You know, j just as Beth was saying. When do we acknowledge God is right and we are wrong? When do we stop making excuses? Uh, one of the biggest problems we have in this country is we live in a land where we have rights. And of course, our, our country was built on, on John Locke's theory of the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and property. And you know, Jefferson modified that and put it into the 
Declaration of Independence, and so that's how we live. And so we all think we have these rights, and then when we start transferring these rights before God, we are in great big trouble, <laughs> as Israel was in great trouble. Part of the previous rebellion had been based on the belief amongst some that leadership in Israel belonged with the tribe of the eldest son, Reuben, and not with Levi. And that had been Dathan and Abiram's point. And God had shown them exactly what he thought of that. So God focuses this test upon tribal leadership. He is saying here, bring a rod, a shepherd's staff, of the leader of each of the 12 tribes. This was the symbol of authority amongst the nomadic Israelite nation. They were a shepherding people. The shepherd's staff had become, in effect, the symbol of authority of the elder of the clan and the elder of the tribe. So 12, tri 12, 12 rods were brought to Moses, including Aaron's. And they were placed in the tabernacle with the name on each rod of the leader to whom the rod belonged. Now they obeyed. Why did they obey? Did they obey because God said so and Moses said so, so they did it? Well, maybe. But they also may have obeyed because they thought we might be able to prove Moses wrong here. You know, this, this little barb keeps showing up, it seems. I'm sure certain ones were skeptical here. What kind of a test is this? Who's ever heard of an old stick that's been cut from a tree for months and maybe even years and used to walk around through the wilderness and whack sheep in line, dry as a bone? Who ever heard of something like this sprouting overnight? Well, as we read on, beginning in verse 8, now it came about <clears throat> on the next day that Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Naturally, of course. I mean, <laughs> happens all the time. But the Lord said to Moses, put back the rod. Oops, wait a minute. Let me go. I skipped a verse. Verse 9, Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel. And they looked, and each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me, so that they should not die. Thus Moses did, just as the Lord commanded him, so he did. We're talking about the next day, right? These rods had been gathered. Moses took them into the tabernacle, into the outer court part there, placed them there before the veil on the other side of which was the Ark of the Covenant. And the next day he went to retrieve the rods. Eleven of the rods looked exactly as they had the day before. But strangely, one of the rods was very different. This was Aaron's rod. Now, you'll notice, and I emphasize this as I read it, it had not only sprouted, but a miracle had transpired that couldn't have been faked. Remember, they're in the wilderness. There aren't exactly almond trees all around the place, you know, with almonds hanging off, where Moses could have gone out in the middle of the night when nobody looking, you know, lopped off one and scrubbed in, put in Aaron's name and stuck this thing in there. No, couldn't have happened because there weren't any almond trees around. And how could a rod sprout overnight? I don't know. Put it in the best of circumstances. Wet it for a few weeks and stick it in some dirt. Is it going to sprout? Chances are pretty slim. But what happens here 
is he pulls the rod out and it's in the midst of a several month cycle. It has buds on it, it has flowers on it, and it has ripe almonds on it. I'm not much of a horticulturalist, but I don't think that happens all at once. You know? I think the budding happens all over the tree, and then when it's done budding, it's flowering. When it's done flowering, then the fruit starts to form, and then after a while, you end up with ripe almonds. The flowers are long gone, the buds are long gone, I mean, but they're all hanging on this rod at the same time. I mean, God doesn't mess around. When he gives a miracle, he gives a miracle. Something that is totally inexplicable. You can't come by with some kind of a natural explanation for this. Now, the miracle not only graphically proved that Aaron's was, Aaron was God's choice for the leadership of Israel, but I think it's symbolic. Symbolic of the fact that spiritual fruit only comes through the power of God. Now, it's true. This is physical fruit. But I think it's symbolic of spiritual fruit. I don't think God blesses the ministry of one that God has not placed in that ministry. God's never strong-armed. Well, I'm going to be the preacher here whether anybody likes it or not, and God, you've got to bless me because I proclaim myself the preacher here. God has never yet been intimidated by a person. I don't care how high up he may think he is. I think it is as true today as it was for ancient Israel that genuine spiritual growth and power are most clearly manifested in God, amongst God's people through the work of God's chosen shepherds. I don't think God is ambivalent about this. I, you know, I don't think it's just kind of a poker game and whoever is the guy who comes up wins the pulpit. I think the person in the pulpit's got to be God's choice to shepherd the flock. And I don't think a flock ever needs to have someone in the pulpit that wasn't God's choice. If they do, it's their own fault. Because through intercessory prayer, uh, through waiting upon the Lord, through seeking the Word of God and the mind of God, I think every congregation can come to an understanding of who God has chosen to provide leadership for that particular flock. I think sometimes politics comes in, and God has no place for politics. God doesn't give a rip about our politics. You know, as far as, well, you know, we've always done it this way. Or we don't want to do anything to offend uh, Cousin George over here because he gives more to the congregation, I mean, more to the pot than anybody else does. You know, those, those things are not of concern to God. What he cares about is that the people are exposed to the Word of God powerfully proclaimed with the Spirit of God at work changing lives. Now, the Word of God is the tool that the Spirit uses to change lives. And where the Word of God is not powerfully proclaimed, you might as well forget it. You'll notice in verse 10 that God commanded Moses to put the sprouted rod of Aaron back beside or in front of the Ark of the Covenant because it was to be a continual reminder of this day that God leads Israel and that God chooses who the leader is to be, spiritual leader as well as the temporal leader. In this all, you know, that last verse that I read to you, verse 11, is it speaks volumes in itself, even though it's very brief. It says, Thus Moses did, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. I mean, is Moses an example to us or what? He's a powerful example. He did exactly what God commanded him to do. What God said, that he did. He didn't say, well, let's see. What should I do here? After all, I'm the leader, you know. 
I'm the one supposed to make the decision, so I think what I'll do here is um, maybe next week <laughs> I'll take it over by the tabernacle, and then maybe next year, if I feel like it, I'll put, no, no. Whatever God said, Moses did, because he knew that he, or we for that matter, find true joy, happiness, and success only in obedience to him. There is no other true joy, true happiness, true success in this life except through obedience to God. I mean, all you have to do, you probably know as I do that on, um, I think it's A&E, they, they have a, a program that comes on a couple times a day called Biography. Now, I don't know how many of you watch very many of them. We don't watch them all the time, but every once in a while we watch one. And it's so pathetic looking at the lives of the rich and the famous. I mean, these people are so pathetic. They live a pathetic life and they die a pathetic death. And sure, maybe they had some fame and maybe they had some money along the way, but it was tragic. No love, no joy. I mean, their lives are just a total mess. Because, you see, they don't know God. They don't choose to obey Him. To live any other way is to condemn oneself to an empty life, a meaningless life, a joyless life, and a powerless life. Well, I really, if you can hang on for a minute, I'd like to finish this chapter. There are only two verses. Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, we perish, we're dying, we're all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? Well, it sounds like a little light has finally sunk in. These two verses, I think, are a perfect transition passage from the arrogant challenge to, to God and to the leadership of Moses and Aaron. I hope you notice that, particularly as you read this chapter where God said he interchangeably used the grumblings against him and the grumblings against Moses. I mean, as far as he was concerned, they're the same. A transition between this attack on the leadership of Moses and Aaron and chapters 18 and 19 where God gives re-instruction concerning the duties, the position, the purpose of the priests and the Levites. It's kind of like, you didn't get it the first time, folks, so I'm going to run it by you again. But we see here that people have finally awakened to the enormity of their rebellion. They have some, come, finally come to the place where they realize challenging Aaron and Moses is challenging God Almighty. And certainly the charred smoking bodies a char of, of, yeah, right, of Korah and the 250 were finally sinking in. And they were coming to an understanding that a person does not approach God on his own terms, but on God's terms. And that's what happened to Cain. God said, I, I want a sacrifice. And Cain says, oh, well, some grain from my field ought to do, God. Well, I mean, you know, his arrogant claim that God will take whatever he gives him and like it. They realized that they had to approach God carefully and according to his explicit instructions and with humility and contrite hearts. They knew they hadn't done that. And that's why they're acting the way they are here. They, they are fearing judgment. And, and these verses are actually a true lamentation. I mean, after all, they, it, it finally sinks in. We have been condemned to die in the wilderness because we did not obey God and go in when he told us to go in. Dathan, Abiram, and Korah and the 250 have perished tragically because they have challenged Moses and Aaron. We have grumbled against God and 14,700 of us are dead here in the wilderness. This has stripped away their self-sufficiency. And they're standing before God naked, as it were. 
And you'll notice the crescendo in their lament in verse 12. They say, Behold, we perish. We're dying. We're all dying. And then verse 13, they really overstate the case. Everyone who comes near, who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. No, not so. Only if you come challenging God's leadership, uh, doing what he's told you not to do, yeah. It's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it's clearly not true if they listen carefully to God's instructions through Moses and if they act accordingly then it's not dangerous at all to come near the tabernacle. Failure to God's instruction, all, to, to obey God's instructions, always leads to pain, despondency, death. But obedience brings joy, peace, and life. The renewed instructions concerning proper worship, which we're going to be looking at in July, in verse chapters 18 and 19, had a purpose to get Israel back on the right track so that the younger generation that was coming along would be prepared to do what? To conquer the land in obedience to God and to march in. You know, we have that song, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And that's what Israel was to do, was to be prepared so they could march into war and conquer the land, not in their strength, but in the strength of God, because they're walking in obedience to his word. We'll be looking at chapters 18 and 19, which are kind of a package in themselves in July, where God gives further instruction or renewed instruction concerning proper worship.